0: Welcome to the second Community Change Collaborative Forum of the semester. Um, Just to um, catch folks up, the Community Change Collaborative is an interdisciplinary group of students and faculty hosted by the Institute for Policy and Governance on campus here in Blacksburg. Our principal faculty mentor is Dr. Max Stevenson, professor of public and international affairs and director of the institute. As members of the CCC, we are interested in the methods, frameworks, and forces shaping community development, approaches to community engagement, and how to build sustainable cross-sectoral partnerships. Our research interests range from local to international case studies, applying a variety of qualitative lenses to connect theory and practices for the benefit of our community partners, practitioners, and researchers interested in community change. Our programming includes a public speaker and roundtable series that brings guests from around the country and the world to reflect on their experiences researching or enacting community change. This forum is an extension of the speaker series to tap into our local network of knowledge and expertise on a more regular basis. Um, So because we're recording the event for the question and answer um, portion of the session, just wait for me. I'll catch up with you with the microphone if you have a question. Today's forum guest is Dr. Todd Shank. Dr. Shank is an assistant professor in the Urban Affairs and Planning Program of the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech. He has extensive research and consulting experience working on environmental policy and planning and collaborative governance issues in North America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Dr. Shank received both a PhD in Public Policy and Planning and a Master in City Planning from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a bachelor's degree in geography from the University of Guelph. He served as the assistant director of the MIT Science Impact Collaborative and held a research fellowship with the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School. Dr. Schenk has always also held positions with the Regional Environmental Center for, Center for Central and Eastern Europe and the Consensus Building Institute. His work includes collaborative governance and joint fact finding, the human dimensions of climate change adaptation, and the application of serious games to better understand uncertain or contentious situations. Professor Shank will briefly summarize his work, then CCC facilitators Catherine Kotrupi and Emma Martin will lead us through conversation and Q&A. Thank you. Great. thank
1: okay. you very much. Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and, um, I really appreciate, I wish I was more familiar, more connected into the great work that CCC does because I think um, it's it's really neat to see that you're bringing different or learning about or uh, uh, talking about the application of, of different community change lenses. So um, the one I'm here to talk to you about today is what we call collaborative governance. So if we think about um, community change, obviously that can take a variety of different forms. Um, I know that some of you are, are connected into the world of community organizing, for example, and that's certainly one uh, really valuable uh, way to approach Community change writ large. Collaborative governance is really um, a methodology or a set of methodologies, practices um, that are designed to uh, engage communities with policymakers, with stakeholders, uh, other stakeholders, whether those be, say, industry, whether those be. Um, uh, uh, a developer in a community, whether those be a community um, neighborhood association, to bring those uh, very stakeholders together for more of a collaborative enterprise of seeking consensus around how to move forward with a decision. Um, and so today I've got a lot of got a whirlwind of stuff I'd like to cover, and we'll see where we get with that. Um, and I look forward to obviously uh, discussing further in the, in the Q&A as well. Um, but if we break it down a lot of, uh, in, into parts, it's really about... Um, or what I'd like to talk to you, to you about is with collaborative governance is engagement, dialogue, deliberation, and what do we do about data or information or facts or whatever we want to call them. Um, I'm going to start, I promise this is the only slide with this much text, so I'm going to start with by overloading you with text. But I wanted to give you a, a fairly uh, standard, broadly accepted, widely used definition of collaborative governance. So um, this comes from Ansel and Gash, and they say, well, they start by defining um, uh, what it's replacing, so what it's not. So it came about to replace this traditional uh, forms of governance that are adversarial in nature, uh, often about managerial modes of policy making where we, we kind of expect policy making to happen uh, somewhere else, and uh, communities at best are 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 quote-unquote consulted through say a public meeting where you come out and you get your one minute at the mic and you uh, yell about your side of or your view of of what's being proposed as a policy or planning or maybe at the federal or state level there's a, a a public comment period where you can send your letter in and advocacy organizations ask their members all to send in, or phone your congressperson, and we're used to that being the, fo- the, 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 the mode of, of uh, engagement around policy making and planning. So differentiating from that, they say collaborative governance brings public and private stakeholders together in collective forums with public agencies to engage in consensus oriented decision making. We'll break that down a bit, but that's really writ large what it is. Um, and they say some of the ingredients, some of the things we wanna see to make this possible um, are ideally we're looking to uh, have a prior history or when it works well is when we have a, a prior history of cooperation rather than conflict. We call for different modes often uh, when conflict is already um, uh, very hot. Uh, at least we have to address that conflict because we're looking to build modes of cooperation. Um, certainly, we uh, stakeholders need to have some what we call interdependence, or as it says here, incentives for stakeholders to participate. Um, it's really hard when there are power and resource imbalances and often that's where the social justice dimension comes in is how are one critique often leveled at collaborative governance, I'll put it this way, is that that point is really important, is often under-considered, is um, how do we deal with the fact that not everybody has the same uh, capacities, the same feeling of right to be at the table, as the same ability to be heard at the table, um, and that's really critically important to, to a broad consensus process. Um, certainly leadership is a key point in getting these processes initiated, as is a, is a robust institutional design. Um, at its heart, this is about face-to-face dialogue often. It's about deliberation about dialogue. Um, it's about trust building. Um, and last but not least is often, uh, there's an emphasis on building a commitment and, uh, to and, and ultimately a shared understanding of the problem. It doesn't mean people are going to come to have the same interests, and we'll come back to that, but at least a same or similar shared understanding of defining the problem. And uh, I know uh, theory is, is, is something this group thinks a lot about, and so I wanted to, to put this slide up, um, kind of to, to, to root this Uh, collaborative governance in um, some theoretical foundations. And I'd say there are um, three core, and then a couple um, at the bottom there I'll mention as well. One is certainly this notion of communicative rationality or collaborative rationality, is it's also called sometimes. It's a Habermasian. It's kind of Habermas is often credited as the, the root of that, but nobody can understand what Habermas is actually saying. It's so dense. So, uh, fortunately, people like Judy Annis and Patsy Healy have helped us make sense of that. Uh, but communicative rationality um, is about parties reaching agreement based on discourse. It's this idea that we're going to come to an inner subjective, meaning we're not necessarily going to have the same. Rationality, but we're going to come to uh, are the same values, same yeah, same rationality, but that we're going to at least come through through communicating to a shared uh, sense of what is this problem, what is the understanding of the problem and what is an appropriate response through this process of, of dialogue. And that really brings us to the second one uh, which is highly connected in, in, in many ways, which is this notion of deliberative democracy. So Dryzek and others talk about del- how deliberation leads to better outcomes. So it's through this process of actually having a conversation, working through this in an intensive way, the dialogue, the dialogic process, um, that we actually get better outcomes. It's a belief in, in the value of dialogue as, as creativity. Uh, and also as a source of legitimacy, so it's through involving multiple parties that we build out legitimacy. And I'd say at the bottom, um, how do we operationalize that? This is much more the kind of operational, pragmatic, to use that word already, side would be consensus building, which is how we put that into practice with a set of techniques that are about um, building broadly supported outcomes through collaborative problem solving. Um, and on that note, I would say, you know, very quickly, liberal democracy often, often undergirds a lot of this, right? This belief in in the importance of societal involvement in defining our society and defining our our. Um, are what our decisions are going to be, right? This participation, democracy as participation, is, cur- is, is certainly undergirds a lot of this. And I'd say there's a pragmatic dimension, especially as we move down towards the bottom. I mean, consensus building is at its nature and a lot of what I'm gonna to talk to you about today is extremely pragmatic in nature in the Deweyan tradition of pragmatism, right? So it's really about uh, this normative idea that we have to make better decisions, we have to involve more people in those making those decisions, we have to arrive at outcomes that are fair, efficient, stable, and wise, as Susskind would say, so, we need to have processes in a very pragmatic way that are going to help us get there. And of course, um, to take a little deviation for a moment here, um, often a, a key question is when we talk about a collaborative governance model, um, to what degree are we really involving people, right? When we talk about governance, as the name, as the second word implies, and as often we think of governance as governance through official agencies, governance as decisions made by either elected officials or appointed government officials. So to what degree are we now going to involve communities in that? And there's been a, you know, the thinking on this goes back at least to, to, uh, to Arnstein back in 1969. And she was uh, very much taking a normative stance that we want to be moving communities up this ladder, right? That the, uh, at the bottom, this kind of, um, the superficial engagement is, is at, at worst destructive, and at best it's about kind of placating people, right? And she was making a very normative argument that we want to be moving people um, up this ladder towards citizen control, where collaborative governance isn't about agencies involving people. It's about people making decisions for themselves. Um, I'd say over time, there have been, certainly, Arnstein's work hasn't gone away, and it's an incredible testament that this many years later, you've probably all seen that diagram before um, many times, Um, but that that uh, organizations like IAP2 have maybe um, taken that and, among other things presented it in a more nuanced way in the sense that um, at that bottom rung of the ladder isn't always bad. So IAP2 with this diagram, and I apologize you can't read it I'm sure, but uh, some of you have seen it before I'm sure and I'm happy to share it later. Um, IAP2 is saying with this essentially um, that, uh, that there are situations in which what we want, all we want to promise to the public is we're going to inform them whereas there are other situations in which we might want to move towards community empowerment right but the collaborative governments can take governance can take different forms but the, what's really important is that communities understand what's being promised to them that they buy into, to the level of engagement that it's being um, promised to and asked of them. Um, and also the different approaches are going to be di- appropriate in different situations. Uh, and so this is IAP 2s Archon Fung's work, for those of you that are looking for further uh, research in this area, Archon Fung's Democracy Cube, I think is another really great, I don't have a slide on it, but it's a really great um, example of this. So that was just a little bit of a deviation to talk about w- what level or how deep do we want that engagement to be, or what is the, what, what is a gradient or way of thinking about um, depth of engagement. In terms of going back to the process itself, when we talk about collaborative governance, what is it look like in practice, and this is a more theoretical model of what we might expect it to look like in practice. This comes from Innocent Boer's uh, uh, book in 2010, um, but we start to get a sense of, of, of both in a theoretical way, but also pragmatic way, what we might want, or, or practical way, what we might want, um, or what we might expect to happen in, want and expect to happen in, in an effective uh, collaborative um, environment. And so they say it's about diversity, interdependence, authentic dialogue, their dyad model. Um, and so, obviously, at the top, what do we want from people? Well, we want to see the true diversity of interests out there, right? A effective collaborative governance arrangement is not one that's that's homogenous, that represents one subset of, of, of the community, of the society, whatever the scale is, um, but that represents the full uh, uh, plural diversity of, of interests. Um, and the other would be that um, collaborative governance is most effective when there's a recognized interdependence between them and often that interdependence interdependence has to be pointed out so if you are a developer you know to use a very uh simple example at a local scale, if you were a property developer, um, it's not always obvious why you should listen to the environmentalists or why you should listen to the association of neighbors in a community adjacent, right? And so it takes that interdependence often has to be both um, in terms of legal structures has to be created sometimes, and so why does a developer listen to environmentalists? Well, because environmentalists in the legal system have enough power, you know, they're weak in some ways, but they have enough power uh, in a legal system to hold up a development for years even decades in some situations right so that creates an interdependence and then of course we need to highlight two parties this is why you should invest in the process because you have that interdependence there's enough that you want from others that you should be involved what do we expect to see at the the table well we expect to see um uh reciprocity uh so we start people start to understand that uh maybe i can get what i want if i start to appreciate what you want and can and can deliver on some of that, or at least support you in some of that. Uh, Certainly that takes relationship building, so this is a very relational process. It's about building enough, um, even trust in some cases, although trust um, is a a little bit more nebulous, and and certainly absolute trust is probably a mistake for parties in in processes, but at least building enough trust to start to have conversations and and appreciate each other's perspectives. Learning as a part of that, how do we learn from each other, Uh, and creativity. Right? We're looking to arrive at outcomes that are better than what we would have by going to court, or by one party getting their way and ignoring others, uh, or what have you, right? This is a process to come up with better outcomes, so that creativity is critically important. Uh, And at the end of the day, and this part, you know, is the more um, fuzzy, and I don't mean that in a a critical way, but the more fuzzy part, right, is where do we, what do we want to see in terms of of collaborative governance as a broader um, democratic project of of society building? Well, we want to see people start to build shared identities, shared heuristics, sorry, shared meanings, new heuristics, and engage and true innovation. And so that should probably sound um, somewhat similar to double loop learning, for example, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Don Schoen's work and, and, and Chris Argus's work. So there's similarities um, down in that level um, around how we build the, the infrastructure and ongoing persistent infra- infrastructure for collaborative governance. Another slide that's going to look painfully familiar to some of you at least uh, and that's good because again you can't read all of the sub bubbles and I didn't necessarily want you to be able to. I, I want to walk through the top, the high level here and I think you can see those hopefully. Uh, but this is just to show you in a very, very pragmatic um, way a way that's operationalized in the real world quote unquote um, how does how does collaborative governance play out in practice and of course this is just one model this is the consensus building approach um, it's Susskind's uh, uh, work and the work of others of course but he's been the kind of leader in this area and again so it's a it's a very much practical way of how do we operationalize collaborative governance and so um, one important, the first, the first step, and I'd say a critically important step is, is, of course, to bring the parties together, again, to uh, uh, start to identify who are the stakeholders, who has a stake in the situation, that is, who is to be impacted by or have an influence on the situation, um, who can speak for those communities, um, and uh, has the legitimacy to speak for communities, um, are they, do they feel like there's interdependence? Uh, we then want to bring them together and start to clarify well what is a process going to look like? how do we um, how can we design a process that is going to um, be uh, just, that is going to be broadly um, um, supported, that is going to have certain ground rules that are going to um, facilitate healthy um, constructive dialogue. yeah, parties should challenge each other, but it's going to be uh, at least protective of of people. Um, and so, It's really important that at this stage, especially when parties can often be coming from very different places, that we are very clear with everybody that this is what everybody's buying into, and we all share this, and one party's not gonna be able to railroad others or uh, um, uh, apply their own kind of approach to this, that we're buying into a shared understanding of what the process is gonna look like and what our responsibilities are to each other and to the wider decision making. Um, we then, of course, we get into the middle of it, the meat of it, the deliberation. Right, that's the part where parties come together, and and a consensus-building process could last for for as little as you know a couple of, of of meetings, you know, maybe three, four, five meetings, all the way up to in some cases years. If we talk about, say, adaptive management uh, processes where there's ongoing iterative management of something, um, but it's about again about the process of of um, trying to understand the problem together appreciating that we have different interests, we have different priorities, but can we come to some shared sense of the problem, and can we start to appreciate that maybe there are ways that we can fulfill different parties' interests uh, concurrently, so rather than it, thinking of it only as zero sum. Um, often we, for this deliberative process, uh, we employ a professional um, neutral, so it's very common to uh, to have a neutral facilitator do this kind of process, um, and that's largely because um, uh, they can provide the structure, they can enforce the ground rules, and they can do a, l- a lot of this stuff is happens not just at the table, but also away from the table, right? It's about parties um, being supported um, as they engage in in doing groundwork and in checking in with their constituencies, for example. So if you're speaking for an environmental community, checking in with that, that, that community away from the table, a lot of work both at and away from the table. And of course, then we get down to how do we come up with with a, a package, a, a agreement that everybody can support, and we're seeking in this model, as the name implies, consensus. We're seeking consensus, right? So it doesn't always mean that 100% of people will support an agreement, but the goal is to have um, as many as possible, rather than having aiming for a 50% plus one vote, for example. We want to try to reach unanimity, or at least near unanimity. And there are reasons I won't get into now why we don't always um, uh, say we have to have complete unanimity where maybe sometimes near unanimity say one party um, uh, backing out is is sufficient um, but we want to get there right we want to get to a broadly supported package and then of course obviously important in any process is is how is it implemented how does it connect into the to the official decision making the you know the, the the voting all those good things and then implementation and how do we ensure that it's implemented how do all parties um, live up to their agreements and keep others accountable so um, just to fly through some of the, 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 the key features that, uh, of this approach. Um, so obviously a focus on, as I said, on engaging stakeholders are often um, not really stakeholders, but their representatives. So it's an assumption, which isn't always there, right? That we can break people down into stakeholder groups and that we can find representation for those stakeholder groups. Uh, it's a focus on interests, meeting one, one's own interests um, and understanding others, uh, being problem-oriented, which involves um, some degree skills of, say, active listening, um, looking for ways to trade across issues uh, and differences to create value. So this takes packaging, creativity, problem solving. Uh, seeking consensus rather than 50% plus one, as I mentioned before. Coalitions become a factor here, right? So as parties start to move towards an agreement, how do they start to build alliances and start to um, and, uh, aggregate support? So start with smaller groups and build support. And sometimes those are also blocking coalitions, right? So if you are a party that feels like you're going to get left out, Uh, and has less power at the table, how do you find an ally to start to build what we call a blocking coalition? But coalitional strategies come into play. Um, Contingency agreements are often important, so we want to build these to be robust over time, so how do we build in um, some flexibility, some adaptive management, while also ensuring that there are mechanisms in place to ensure that the agreement lasts. Um, And last but not least is this role of professional neutral. So a lot of this um, happens uh, and actually succeeds because there is a neutral there that, that can help to provide some of the structure and walk people through. Um, if I provide you uh, a quick example here, um, so if we look at uh, this is where I used to live in Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, was a uh, actually a Ford plant, where the Ford Edsel was manufactured. Ford was, that's why it's called Assembly Square, of course. Uh, uh, Ford moved out and left this uh, parcel um, vacant for quite a while, a brownfield, field. Uh, and then there was a mall built here, very unsuccessful mall. It was actually the car, went from being a car factory to the car theft capital of the United States. Uh, back in, in the uh, 80s, and so not uh, a lot happening here, and even when there was a mall built, a lot of vacant land around it, a developer came in and said, look, this is an incredible parcel. It's actually the lar- was the largest parcel of undeveloped, quote unquote, or brownfield, or underutilized land uh, in, in the sort of inner Boston area, what they call it, inside the 128 corridor. developer came in and said, um, well, we want to build uh, big box development, right? What a great opportunity to build an IKEA new Home Depot, right? So came in and did this. Community group uh, emerged that, interestingly, was not against development. Right, was not saying we don't want development, but said we don't want this. We don't want big box stores. We wanted development for a lot of reasons. Right, concerns around traffic impacts and the associated pollution, the quality of jobs, uh, the uh, what it would uh, do to the tax base. Even you know they were concerned that this type of development doesn't pay particularly, uh, or doesn't maximize tax revenue for the community. They said they wanted something more like this. This was a, uh, a savvy community group, as often community groups are, right? They weren't just no, 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 as, as often the stereotype. They actually had some, some creative ideas. And they said, look, this parcel is perfect for what we would call in planning, you know, mixed use transit oriented development, right? And so they had this alternative vision for this site. And they were fighting for a very long time. When I say a long time, 20 years, 15, 20 years of, of fighting. And the developer um, putting pr- forward a proposal and the community group through both the electoral process of changing town, or city council and also through the courts of stifling their their, their development plans, right? Um, ultimately, um, and things had to come together, right? It, it wasn't magic. It wasn't um, any one thing. You know, one thing was that the developer switched. So a new developer brought, bought the parcels. Uh, that was a little bit more open to kind of the mixed-use development and was open to dialogue with the community Uh, but they uh, ultimately um, decided to engage in what we might call a consensus building process a facilitated process that brought together the community group brought together the developer uh, and uh, sat down and talked through, okay, what are the issues, what are the uh, concerns that the community group has, for example, how can we do something that's going to give the developer the the returns that they want out of a project like this while concurrently um, satisfying the community's concerns around, as I said, traffic, uh, the type of development they wanted in their community, um, the tax revenue they thought they could get from from another um, from a different um, model and so on and so forth and ultimately uh, you know it was a creative process so originally they shuffled things around one big thing it doesn't sound so big it sounds kind of prosaic but it matters in a community setting is that uh, the ikea was originally going to be on the water and that seemed really silly to community members because Why would you waste that waterfront property building a big, giant IKEA there? So one of the first things they did was they said, well, actually, we can rearrange it. And we're going to give you a park because you're worried about public amenities. We're going to give you a nice park here. And we're going to move the IKEA up to the front of the site. Turns out in the end, actually, IKEA didn't get built. And the community group got a lot of what they wanted. And so um, it's still under development. It's not fully built yet. But this is a somewhat blurry picture of what it looks like today. It's got apartment housing. It's certainly got some mollish big-box elements, like a giant uh, cineplex. Uh, it's got the Lego, uh, what do they call it, Venture World or whatever they call their their Lego uh, uh, experience. Uh, it's got a... They, they got a, su- a subway stop. There happened to be a subway literally going through this site. But when it was going to be a big-box store, there was no incentive to build a subway stop. Very few people use the subway to go to Ikea, it turns out. Um, so they... Um, uh, the end when they mixed in more of this mixed use type development they, they got some money and of course it brought uh, bringing some other stakeholders in so the local congressperson Mike Capuano uh, went to bat and lobbied to get federal transportation funds allocated to help them with the subway stop and next thing you know there was an agreement where all the parties really felt satisfied where all the parties really felt like um, hey this is something we can um, we can uh, live with uh, It gives us enough of what we want uh, and uh, and we're going to go forward with this. I forgot to mention there's a giant. When I left c- a couple of years ago, or three or four years ago, they were building a, a giant office uh, building too to house a big one of the big health insurance companies or health health providing companies. I forget, uh, but anyway, uh, which is obviously great in terms of quality of jobs, in terms of tax revenue, and so on and so forth. So so really, uh, a lot of good things happen through this collaborative process. Um, I'm not going to. I'm going to. Um, wrap up there, but I will mention two other things I was going to, to bring up if I had time and we can come back to you if you, if you like. One is, um, well I'll show you this one because I love this slide with the, with the uh, <laughs> with, you know, we, we live in a time where a part of a process like that is, is around information, right, and p- parties marshal competing facts or information to, uh, uh, to make their case right? And we're used to that. And we often call that, you know, fake news, and we think these people are crazy, and, you know, what are they talking about? Alternative facts, we make fun of them. But of course, I mean, it's easy to make fun of them until you really think about, I mean, what is postmodernism? I mean, that's, that's, we're, we're happy to talk about postmodernism. And in a way, that makes this kind of process really hard, because what is truth? What are facts? And so, I, I'd say a complementary area of work I've been doing, and I'm not going to go into detail on it, but I'll just quickly mention, is uh, this idea of joint fact-finding methodologies as a way for groups in engaged in a process like like Assembly Square um, to uh, come to a shared sense of facts. And it doesn't mean that it's going to um, change parties' interests or priorities, but at least they can come to a a shared set of what what the information is. Uh, And in fact, Assembly Square is a great example because it did involve an element of that. So one question was, under different development scenarios, what were the impacts going to be on air quality? Developers said, look, this is already... There's already a huge interstate, Interstate 93 there, with major uh, air quality implications. There's already a major rail line going through here, uh, a couple other highways. uh, This development is not going to have an appreciable impact on air quality. And of course, the community said, well, actually, that's precisely the problem. Is all these things already being there, you're going to add on to that is only going to make a bad problem worse. Um, And they were marshaling different information, right? What's the truth around what? air quality implications are going to be of this development. And so they came to, and this is a, what we call a joint fact-finding light. It wasn't a particularly extensive joint fact-finding process. Uh, but they, they decided to, to collectively hire uh, an air quality modeler, an academic from Harvard, that they both said, you know, we we're going to trust that this modeler is going to do a reasonable job of modeling the the air 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 quality impacts of different uh, development scenarios, and they got those models back and again it didn't change their interest priorities if your high, highest priority is is air quality and you 're worried about childhood asthma and you 've got that's still going to be your highest priority and if you are the developer and you want to downplay those impacts you're worried about you know getting development built you 're going to downplay those still, but at the very least we now have a shared sense of okay, this is some rough not rough, this is, uh, this is a model we all can live with, right? This is an estimation that we both can, can say it's, you know, it's a point of departure for the discussion, I guess I'd say. And one last thing, if, we, if, you'll, if you'll be charitable and give me one more moment. The other thing I'd say is uh, that's, that's kind of what do we do with information. The other thing is what do we do about situations where it's, I'd argue, getting um, uh, extremely or, or at least increasingly difficult for people to have deliberation because they're having difficulty having dialogue. Uh, and I think we see that more and more, right? And deliberation is, is premised on this notion that parties can get together and have a rich conversation. Uh, they're going to, you know, learn from each other and they're going to be creative and we're going to come out with better outcomes. And if you can't even talk to each other, all of that's out the window, right? So some work I've been doing, and some of you will be aware of a Frenemies project and we did civility VT here at VT, um, is around how do we have civil discourse, right? And and it's it's um, it's it's challenging and it's and it's rewarding and it's all at the same time I'd say because um, I don't certainly mean to suggest with this work that everybody should just um, put away their uh, their their strongly held beliefs and even their feelings for example or 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 or, or realities of, of being for example marginalized and just have a conversation with somebody who who, who threatens their identity that's not where I think this work should go. But on the other hand, uh, when it comes to policy making, there are a lot of situations in which people are having a hard time having a conversation where I think at least I'll make that argument that it behooves them to at least be able to to have a conversation despite the fact that they disagree with each other so much and so you know and this uh, this was the first time we did it and this picture was 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 so good i think that i keep reusing it because it's just this is not staged uh you know this is uh, uh they're both students or were students uh this guy obviously wearing a trump hat this is back in 2000 and uh, uh what was it, just before the election 16 or it's 15 yeah 16 spring 2016 yeah uh and he you know Strong Trump supporter, uh, and uh, obviously um, um, uh, his counterpart. I should say, obviously, except uh, maybe you can't tell. He's wearing a Mexican football jersey, so which doesn't automatically mean you're going to be more pro-immigration, but in this case, he was. Uh, And so they're wearing a Mexican football jersey and a a Trump uh, hat, and. and are having a conversation on immigration. And the amazing thing was, these guys couldn't have been more different. And to this day, I'm guaranteeing you that they, don't, they, don't necessi- they, don't, they didn't change in how they see the world. I'm not guaranteeing you, but I'm assuming they didn't change how they see the world. But they were able to have a conversation about immigration in a way that was largely respectful and where they left at least having some understanding of where this side was coming from, despite the profound continuing disagreement. And that's, I think, important if we're gonna start to have conversations around policy, right? Why do you feel that way? I'm not going to agree with you because I know why you feel that way. But why do you feel that way? And how can I engage with you in such a way that you're going to be respectful enough of me and I'm going to be respectful enough of you to have a conversation about why we feel the way we do. Um, And uh, with that, I will wrap. I'm sorry, I think I went a little over. But uh, thank you.
2: Um, Thanks so much for that, Todd. Um, My name is Catherine Catrupe, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm an assistant director with VT Engage here on campus, Um, work full-time, and then I'm also a part-time PhD student in the higher
3: education program. Um, And I'm Emma Martin. Um, I'm your TA, so you know who I am. (laughs) But I'm a second-year MERP student. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I think that's about it.
2: Excellent. So thanks for joining us for our conversation today.
1: Thank you both a lot. This has been a pleasure.
2: Um, so, like I mentioned, um, I'm a part-time graduate student, and I'm in a course this semester on community-based participatory research, which, for context, for those unfamiliar um, with CPPR, is a laboratory research orientation that actually engages stakeholders in all aspects of the research process. They're involved in the initial framing of an issue to study, determining how the research should be conducted, um, actually assisting in the, and conducting in the research, um, reviewing the results, and suggesting how those results of the research should be shared out. Uh, The intention of CBPR is to address power dynamics between the so-called experts, the academics or researchers, and those affected by the issues being studied, uh, those who are the experts in their own right, of their own experiences with that issue being studied. Um, This highly collaborative and liberatory model of conducting research is in direct opposition to most traditional research methods, but is much more collaborative and engaged. And you talked a little bit about collaborative governance. Um, Could you share about your own personal work in the area of stakeholder engagement and the challenges and opportunities therein?
1: Yeah, no, thank you, Catherine. That's uh, as I said uh, to you earlier. When I was reading these questions, I thought, "Wow, these are these are incredible." Uh, and of course, one could write a lifetime of books and beyond on them. Uh, so I'll try to deal with this in as quick a way, and I hope I'll get at some of the things. And then, of course, you can tell me, "No, that's not what you meant." And I'll, uh but uh, let's let's start with the, from uh, the point of departure that um, I think uh, consensus building processes are are really. Um, Their strength, I'll put it this way their strength is that um, they have that legitimacy in that outside world of, of uh, I'm trying to find the word you used, but then in that kind of the, the world of traditional decision-making, the traditional hierarchical ways of decision-making, because often they are, for better or worse, and I can talk about both, they are initiated by, say, or at least sponsored by agencies or accepted by agencies that would make decision-making, right? So a lot of these consensus building processes, ones I've been involved with, um, at the very least have the support of, say, the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, if we look at one, um, that I was involved a bit with on the on the, uh, on the um, Connecticut River, right? So it's an example. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers was was behind it. They were supportive of it. They believed that there should be better ways of engaging communities, right? They, they bought into the idea that um, that we want to hear different voices and that we're going to end up with a better outcome, an outcome that's more, again, to repeat, Susskind, fair, efficient, stable wise, if we involve others, but it's the point of departure was still them, and of course, I, I think there's a strength in that that it uh, is a direct link into decision making, to the decision making, to the traditional um, institutions of decision making. The downside is that uh, it isn't always as liberatory. I guess um, I think it can be done better or worse in that way. There's no, there's no. Um, there's no reason it can't be necessarily. It's just that often um, that's not the goal of the agency. So what it really takes is a strong commitment on the side of the facilitator, of the neutral, to ensure that a process is broadly, is really truly broadly engaging. And people like Larry Susskind at the forefront of this, I think, appreciate that uh, completely uh, and, and uh, would never accept to work on a process that doesn't take into account uh, the, the broad range of stakeholders, and that including, when I say take into account, that's not really saying enough, because it's not just a matter of saying, oh, you're there and come to the process, but the, the norms of decision making, the norms of what information we accept, the norms of, of what is valid, what is not, are going to, um, uh, remain that wouldn't be very effective, right? You're just sitting there getting frustrated because nobody understands the way that you see the world and the information you can bring to bear that maybe it doesn't use the same terms and the same language. So Consensibility has done it at its best, and again, to, to invoke Larry, uh, partly because I think his work is really incredible here. You know, So Larry's done work in Canada with, the, with indigenous communities, for example, where um, communities are trying to uh, work with federal wildlife management and fisheries agencies for example um, to, uh, to come to a shared sense of the resource and how it might be effectively managed. And to Larry that's really important to work with those communities. And so happens that at different times in Canada there have been opportunities where agencies really bought into that. But that takes work. And I, I would be lying if I didn't say there are probably times when facilitators out there get a contract to do a process and they're a professional neutral and yes they have these values and they deeply appreciate communities but um, you know, there's a limit, right? They're pragmatic at the end of the day and they want to do the process. They don't want to walk away from it because it's not perfect. Um, so it's always an effort. And I'd say, uh, not to babble too much, but just to add one last thing on a uh, joint fact-finding, I think that becomes even even more of an important question. And I think question, yes, and a real opportunity because I think that the first steps in this really young area of thinking of joint fact-finding have, have been really more focused on um, on kind of Western science and and, and uh that form of expertise. Um, But there certainly have been processes, and I would use there Peter Adler's work in Hawaii as an example of how do we bring together uh, local traditional indigenous knowledge and I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but I'll use it for now. Western, quote unquote, Western science, and one of you can tell me if there's a better term for that. But you know, the, the kind of uh, science and engineering, we you know think of white lab coats and all those things. Um, you know, and there are ways, and people are doing it, um, but it's hard because uh, think about how hard it is to work in a transdisciplinary way between science and engineering and social sciences on a university campus. And then you think about how do you engage people that's knowledge of something is is. Is certainly no less pr- profound and no less important, but so different, right? It's based on a deep experience. exactly. It's de- based on a deep connection to that place. So, so those are really hard to reconcile. I'd be lying to you if I said th- that I think there's some magical way you can do that. Okay. It's hard work. Right? Thank you. Thank you. So I have the
3: next question. Um, how can planning approaches and existing tools that have facilitated the inclusion of diverse stakeholders deal with urgent challenges like climate change? Your paper on the dilemma of citizen inclusion in urban planning and governance to enable a 1.5 degree Celsius climate change scenario points out the constraints to climate change action that they're not often scientific in nature. Um, So how can we avoid the political and policy challenges that constrain climate change action or any collaborative effort of this sort?
1: Well, I think that's that's another, that's also a great question. And um, I think there's a couple ways one could answer it. Um, I'm gonna read into the question being that um, the, the assumption that current institutions are not up to the challenge, is that, can I can I read that a little bit for now at least? Uh, and I'd say consensus building processes can be incredibly um, powerful on the one hand there because by nature they're supposed to bring in a broader range of, of voices uh, that are going to um, be highlighting different issues and advocating for the resolution. Uh, but on the other hand they can also be, consensus building processes can be conservative in nature because you now have given voice to a lot of parties and and uh, their interests may be at cross purposes to what you and I see as as urgent. Um, and so I'd say, you know, advocacy is, and I, and I don't know if this is answering your question, I hope it is at least a little bit. Advocacy is is such an important complement to any consensus building process, as is, say, community organizing. I don't think of community organizing as, a, as an alternative to necessarily, say, consensus building. I think of community organizing and, and other techniques as critically important complements, because it's through, whether it's community organizing or just more traditional civil society, NGO advocacy, the reason parties um, come to the table is because of, as I said before, this interdependence, right? Parties come to the table because they're scared they're going to lose something if they're not there, right? I don't think, maybe somebody listening later from ExxonMobil can come and and yell at me, but I don't think oil companies started to talk about climate change and whether or not they they're, they really are now. That's a discussion for another day. But I don't think they started to have those conversations out of the good of their heart. They did because they saw regulation coming down the pipeline, because they saw um, uh, advocacy groups lo- lobbying. They had to deal with with the pushback when they uh, did uh, when terrible things happened, like um, like the the spills we've seen, obviously. Um, that's that's where where other parties that maybe are at cross purposes to what you might want to achieve as a community group, that's when they start to engage is when they see when they get afraid, right? When they, and that doesn't mean that, um, that I don't think the dialogue, the, cl- the consensus building part is important. It's to say that it's, it's, it's complemented by or complementary to advocacy, right? Activism, to put that word on it, um, not, not separate from or in, con- in conflict with.
3: Great, right. thank you. Um, I've got the next question, too. So in the evolution of community, self-organization, and inter- interaction with government institutions uh, cross case insights from three countries that you co-authored this year, you discussed the phenomenon of co-destruction, um, which seems to describe the current relationship among politicians at the federal level who are actively opposing and discrediting each other depending on party affiliation, kind of like the picture behind us right now. Um, Based on your negotiation work at different scales, what can be done to address this political quagmire? And what is the role, if any, of the self-organized community in this process?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, can, I can't take, obviously, any credit for this notion of co-destruction or even claim any great expertise on it. You know, this is a paper as well with a couple of other authors that are more steeped in that literature. Um, but what I can say, I really like the question part of this, um, is I think a couple of things. Um, maybe it's become kind of a... Um, uh, what's the right word? Like you know, we all know this to be true, but um, but all, p- communities often are better at getting along at the at the more local level than they are at the federal level. And I think we look at what happens, the breakdown in Washington, um, or the way we respond, so as the picture behind us implies, to these broad policy questions uh, that are that are you know larger scale problems. And we think that that's that's just our, the way we've become. And, and I, there is probably an element of truth to that. That you know, as I think it's scary that we are um, polarizing more in some ways, at least. Um, but on the other hand, um, often communities at the local level do find ways to come together and solve problems and work across difference, right? I mean, communities have been historically and continue to be um, uh, to to do that, right? And I say at the local level, right, solving specific problems at the local level. So I think a lot of this, um, where this work can be most effective, often is there. And I'd like to think there are applications at higher level policy decision making as well. Um, but a lot of this is about um, providing a structure for communities to solve uh, problems that are real to them in a place where it's clear who they are, who the other parties are, uh, and, and uh, where they can start to build, rebuild trust. Because the other thing I'd say is um, the electoral system we have is obviously great at doing many things, but it's not good at seeking consensus, clearly, right? That's, that's actually anthema to it. What we want to see is we want to see people with clearly defined policy positions and clearly defined um, uh, perspectives on you know, baskets of perspectives. right? We want them to have platforms. And it's clear and unambiguous that you are the democratic candidate and you represent my values and for the most part on issues I align with you and I'm, I'm with you, right? That's not, that's, there are ways in which that's good but it also isn't particularly good to this notion of building consensus. Uh, and so um, these processes, I think, are really complementary in so far as um, we want to overcome this kind of black and white dichotomy, win, lose, uh, and, and build democratic institutions that are also um, uh, deliberative and collaborative in nature and consensus-seeking in nature. And those, aren't, those don't necessarily replace those traditional electoral democratic institutions. They can be parallel to them. Without. Thank you.
2: Uh, so, Dr. Schenk, a second ago you just talked about um, folks' connection to local issues um, a bit more closely than perhaps federal issues and their engagement with them. Um, and I think that's probably because you know, folks feel that connectivity to each other, right? They're engaged in the work because it's something that they're they're passionate about or Mm -hmm. that affects them deeply. Um, And many current graduate students are being trained to write positionality or reflexivity statements for their research and publication, um, which are statements made by researchers about their own personal identities and experiences that provide context for their interest in and relationship to the work that they are studying. Um, These statements are intended to intentionally name and address questions of the researchers' objectivity and subjectivity. Um, could you share with us what yours might be, um, the relationship that you have this, to this work and the experiences that you've had that, that tie you to your interest in it?
1: Yeah, thank you. No, that, and this is um, um, th- this is a, a, a tough one. I'm, g- I'm glad you asked it, but it's tough. And I, I was thinking about it before, and I was like, I'm actually going to answer off the cuff because I'm curious how, how I'm going to answer myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, starting with the kind of positionality of, of uh, and, and, and I do t- try to recognize this, you know, I think we all, have responsibility to do much better. At least those of us like me that are uh, heterosexual, you know, straight male, white male, identify as have a have a, a, a greater responsibility to understand that positionality, that place to come from. Uh, and I and I think that um, in this work that is critically important because my my um, values, or I'm sorry, I'm not using the words you use, but I'm, I'll, I'll talk about it this way. My values are are that um, that we can achieve. Uh, uh, great things through collaboration and I have a predilection or or a, a preference for whenever possible, um, building a community in a way where we broadly involve everyone and we come to consensus around our way forward despite our differences, despite our, and not just our differences in position, but differences in, in interests and priorities, right? Um, but that despite that, that we can come to consensus on creative outcomes, not always for sure, but then in a lot of situations. Um, but I can see, I, I do recognize how that is a, might be easier from my position because, um, as I said before, there are times in which consensus seeking can be um, more conservative in some ways. And I don't mean conservative politically, like you know, right left. I mean conservative in terms of status quo, right? Because um, we're looking for ways that uh, that are um, going to be acceptable to everybody, including those that want things to be the way they are, right? And that have benefited from traditional systems of inequality. And so, if you're on the the the, if you have been on the wrong side of those systems of inequality, I can fully appreciate the 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 the, the, ex- the sentiment that while well, it's easy for you to say we should just you know seek consensus, but in fact you know the, the conservative way that we've been, and again conservative meaning status quo way we've been is is um, has not been particularly good to me. So no, I want revolutionary change. Right? Consensus build- building is not typically about revolutionary change. Um, And so I don't think it's perfect in all situations for that reason. I think that you should go into something like this, or I feel like I should, I'll I'll personalize it, go into something like this with an appreciation for that, and I would go into it with um, what, again, to invoke Larry, Larry Susskind uh, calls a more activist framing of mediation. So there are, you know, some mediators will go into a process, professional neutrals will go into a process with a perspective that my job is to enforce ground rules, and it's going to be pretty obvious to what the ground rules are, because we always have ground rules, and it just means don't shout at everybody, and everybody should be polite, and everybody can speak for five minutes at a time. And you know these these 10 things and that's my job and if i'm going to be neutral that's what i do right whereas the 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 more activist model of mediation would say i need to be substantively fairly neutral i can't tell these people what the right outcome is But I can recognize that some parties are gonna come in uh, with a disadvantage, and that disadvantage can be material. They're not coming with a bunch of lawyers. It can be uh, positional vis-a-vis traditional ways of knowing, as we were talking about before. I don't come in with all this litany of scientific background and and training and and perspective on the way things work. Uh, But whatever the the reason is, that they're coming in with with a disadvantage uh, to, a, to processes insofar as they mimic traditional decision making. And so I'm going to work with those parties and I'm going to ensure they have the resources to be full participants in the process, right? And we're going to create space where the way they engage is accepted and is treated with respect and, and equally to the degree possible as the other mo- models of knowing. So I think there are ways that we can be uh, more even liberatory to go that far. Uh, with the way we we, const- we construct these things, and the way we treat parties, and the way we support parties, and we help parties, and and when I say help, I mean that in the you know empower parties is really maybe the better word um, to to engage more effectively. Because there's no point in a party coming in and leaving. It's good for everybody, right? From a pragmatic perspective, it's not good for anybody if a party comes in and leaves feeling like yeah, once again, I kind of was you know kind of treated, placated. They invited me here, a big deal, you know. I was able to you know say a few things and I guess maybe you know, something they listen to, but I can't really tell the difference. That party's not satisfied and they're going to continue to and shouldn't continue to engage in, in, in the more adversarial forms of engagement they've done in the past. Thank you. Thank you.
3: OK, okay so can you discuss, um, I know you discussed joint fact, fact finding a little bit, but policy experiments, joint fact finding, and role play simulation, and their role in climate change action planning or any strategic planning?
1: Yeah, how do I answer this in a shorter way because I'm babbling too much. Well, uh, let me just, well, first of all, I'm going to I'm gonna ignore the policy experiments if that's okay. Yeah. So I'm going to leave that one out. Joint fact-finding I already talked about a little bit just to say, I think actually, I, did I explain that well enough? Do you, is that okay? So, Len, let's just skip right to serious games because they're the most fun. So. Um, so, yeah, I didn't talk about the use of serious games at all today. It's a part of the work that I do. Uh, do and, and I really enjoy. Um, and often serious games are a way to uh, put multiple parties into uh, what, we, what I often call a sandbox-like environment um, where they can uh, get to know each other and understand there's some perspective taking. So often in a serious game, um, parties will um, take on a role other than their own. So they are, there's a perspective taking dimension where they're seeing the world through the eyes of another. Um, there is an opportunity to experiment with different tools approaches in a place where, you know, it's it's really expensive in the real world to, to, to try to do a policy experiment, right? To try to try something different. Whereas there you can explore experiment. Uh, and um, last but not least would be, uh, well certainly I shouldn't say last but not least, but getting to know each other. So just building relationships. So often we use serious games at the beginning of a process. And then last but not least was going to be to start to understand the implications of a problem like climate change that is rapidly emerging, but where a community hasn't necessarily felt those impacts or seen it yet. Some have and some haven't, um, obviously, but for communities that are starting to grapple with what could happen to us, um, it can be a way to vividly illustrate. There are a lot of problems, right? A serious game is a gross simplification of reality. You're choosing some people to be uh, modeled there, not others. The people that take on the rules are going to do a crude job of, of enacting those rules. Um, but it's a way, as I said, to at least, um, and often where it's most useful is in the early stages of any process to do those, th- when, when getting to know each other, when getting to understand other perspectives, understanding what tools approaches you might marshal, uh, and so on and so forth, when those are, are, um, are most important, uh, the early stages is when serious games are most important. Was the quickest I could answer that question.
3: You did great. <laughs> um, yeah, go
2: ahead. One more, right? yeah, OK. Um, so this actually directly relates to serious games. Um, recently, I attended a research exchange at the Kettering Foundation uh, with Dr. Kerry Kirk that was about how to go about framing issues for deliber- deliberative dialogues. Um, and Kettering states that framing issues starts with understanding how people think about the issue. It's important to talk to people to learn about their concerns and starting points. Um, could you share with us a little bit about your process for beginning to even frame complex issues uh, for or with stakeholders and participants within a collaborative governance process and potentially through uh, the serious games framework?
1: Yeah, well, no, and that, the, again, another great question. And the, a part of the answer is um, I think there's a, a world of ways in which uh, there should be much more cross-pollination, as is often the case. We're so good in academia of, like, m- methodologies being in one area, and it's like, oh, wait a second. We're reinventing the wheel over here. That actually would be perfect. So I should look up more. Say I'm obviously familiar with some of Kettering's work, but that would be really useful to learn more about how they do that. Um, the, I'll try to again answer as quickly as possible. The, the traditional methodology for how we've done the, done that process of of of, um, of Framing issues, or more importantly, understanding the multiple framings people have uh, is is through a process of what we call sometimes stakeholder assessment, sometimes conflict assessment, sometimes situation assessment. But it's the assess- assessment process. And it's a really important precursor to getting to that consensus building process. And what you do during the assessment phase is um, Usually, a neutral has already been hired. Ideally, the neutral's been hired to come in and do the assessment or neutral team. has been hired to do the assessment and they haven't yet been hired to do the later stage because you don't wanna sort of presume what the next step in the process is gonna look like. They're hired to come in and uh, typically they'll start with a group of interviews that are um, that are recommended by the by the convener. So the convener might be an agency It might even be a local um, um, nonprofit or community organization. So uh, to give you an example, um, when I worked at CBI or worked with CBI, we did one on the Assabet River, a small river in Massachusetts, and that was um, initiated not by a, an agency. Uh, it was initiated by the Friends of the Assabet River, right? But they organization sorry organization for the Assabet River or uh, and in that case, you know, this community organization um, uh, invited us or hired us to come in and as a first step uh, interview uh, people that they thought were important, but we, applying them a snowball technique where they recommend the next level of people to interview and we go outwards from there until we've identified, until we've got a good constellation of folks we've spoken to. And that process is about asking them to, you know, we'll usually be going in with some sense of the problem, like, you know, in that case, is nutrient uh, the river's non compliance with its nutrient load. But we'll go out and we'll hear to, party, to, to various parties, well, what are your perspectives on the acid bed and the issues that the acid bed has? And only later questions will actually get into what the acid bed river organization cares about, right? So we don't start with... What do you think about nutrient pollution? We start with, tell us about your relationship to the acid And of course, through that process, to use that example, you end up with um, an understanding that parties have very different perspectives on the value of the river, on the problems with the river. If you're a neighbor living on the river, uh, this may not surprise you. It might surprise you for many of them the, that the most passionate were people who deeply wanted to see the dams, for example, maintained because they love their impoundment pond. Turns out, from some environmental reasons, that's not actually as great of an idea, but people are attached to the viewshed, right? And so that was their passion. If you talk to other uh, farmers, for example, they have different perspectives on on the river. Um, but that's a part of it. And then from there, building out a, a report that you share with all the parties that summarizes these are where people are coming from, there's, these are their interests and, and values and priorities. Um, and I don't know that that is a answer your question fully, but that's what we traditionally do.
2: I appreciate that. You actually uh, really closed the loop nicely. That sounds like a very you know community-based participatory research process that you just explained. So yeah. thanks for kind of bringing that full circle. Um, I think we're going to turn it over to audience questions now.
4: Uh, this is Coley. Um, I am super interested in your serious games, and I want to do them. Uh, but also, I was wondering, how do you think communities can link together to make more of a difference at a federal level instead of just locally?
1: Yeah. That's a good question. What do you think? <laughs> I've wanted to do that the whole time, is turn a question around someone <laughs> That's a
4: good... Yeah. Oh. Mm. It's, a, it's, a t- it's a tough question. That's why I'm asking you, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I don't have any special answer well, to that one. You, I, mean, I don't have a do special answer to any of these. Do you
4: seri- serious games or these the assessment phase um, processes uh, could help that, or um, finding communities that can maybe um, agree on things, even if they're far away from each other, uh, maybe they could come together, maybe there are specific organizations or websites that they can have to maybe get their information or ideas across to a larger range of people, or I don't know.
1: Well, I don't think this is actually answering your question, but I'm going to say this because this is the best I can do. Uh, the um, Communities can do a lot of things you just talked about, and they can start to build solutions to problems, and depending also what scale we talk about community at. Certainly, um, in this country, states, certain states have done a good job of, of forcing the federal government's hand on policies by doing things, um, by reaching agreement on things at, at that scale that then um, – Essentially, I mean, sometimes even industry says, wait, 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 we can't deal with this mass across the country. Of course, a big example there is often with the way auto emissions are regulated, right? So California has always been a leader there uh, and continues to be. Um, And so I think you could find a parallel model to that in terms of of how communities can start to... um, And communities are often at the forefront, right? So if we look at coastal adaptation to climate change... um, most of the, of the interesting stuff isn't happening because the federal government is saying like, oh, there's coastal flooding hazards and we're going to come up with all this stuff everybody should do. No, it's happening and it shouldn't downplay the federal government. I mean, some agencies have been doing a lot, invested a lot. I mean, post-Sandy, um, the federal government put a heck of a lot of money into to redevelopment. But even there, the federal government put a lot of money in and probably for good reason uh, was wise to, um, to have a soft touch, right? So there were some people behind that effort to dis- distribute the money. That were really wise and a lot of the time that was really good right so you had uh people like hank ovink who you know did a really incredible job of of, of making um, Soft touch decisions, but of course, then the, the downside of doing things at the community level is some communities are going to are going to make choices we might think are good, and some are not. And so, to use that example, some communities were were, were wiser than others, right? I, and I, not to pick on certain communities, but there are certain coastal communities in New Jersey that essentially decided to rebuild things the way they were. And uh, next hurricane comes around, we're going to throw a lot of money at them again, I guess. So, um, communities don't always make the best decisions. By the way, I mean, maybe as a downer thing to say, but.
0: Hello, this is Neda. Thank you so much for your presentation and your um, q and um, I had two questions. One of them, to some extent, was answered during your last um, reply. Uh, about this picture, as you said, convening is the first step. So how does these people feel that there is a stake that they should come and be vulnerable about their values being questions about their deepest beliefs? How do you drag them to the table? This is yeah. my first question. The second one is: um, in the ideal world, uh, there would be consensus between these two people. They will reach uh, some sort of shared value. What will happen next mm-hmm. at higher level?
1: That's a great. Those are both really great questions. Um, so to answer your first one, well, let me answer the the the, the truthful one in this very particular situation. Is that uh, you know I. I was doing a lot of recruiting and so I went to student groups that represented these sides, to put it that way, of the issue, Uh, and these two were more than happy to come out because they're very passionate about this on on opposite sides. Uh, And also uh, I was giving them small gift cards. I don't think these two came for that reason, but some of the people, you know, it's bribery, you know, that's how. But that doesn't really answer your question, because your question is really, how do we do this in in the, in the broader world, and how do we convince people to have these conversations? And I think the answer is, and I think this starts to tie into your second question, is that we um, organize these around not just issues people are passionate about, but issues where people feel like they, uh, they want to influence the conversation and they can influence the conversation. And in fact, this is almost a really bad example for that reason because this was done to have this dialogue and to you know um, both promote and also learn something about this idea of, of civil discourse. It wasn't done to really have a conversation to change the needle in policy. Um, they're both pretty uh, strong... Uh, um, impressive individuals they may go out and actually in the long term their lives may de- take them there but but um, but in general you know th- this wasn't pushing the policy needle i think the way you get people out in general is that you do have it about issues where they can have some influence on and they want to have some influence and they're going to go because they feel like i can make a difference here um, and uh... and so to give you an example um, and i hope this starts to answer your second question Well, sorry, let me start by saying this. And so sometimes that means we just choose issues at the local level. And then your second question was how do you tie it into national level? Is that right? Uh, And so the answer is uh, even broader policy issues often have local dimensions. And so to give you an example there would be um, something sensitive like abortion, right? What would be the value in bringing together people who have strong opinions on both sides of abortion? Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you know you're not going to likely, they're not going to change each other's opinions, right? But one can imagine where coming together and having this dialogue, they might start to, and I don't use that in a a hypothetical way. I wasn't involved with it, but other people have done dialogues around abortion. What can happen there is the parties both at least start to uh, maybe uh, appreciate that the other side has a perspective coming from somewhere, not just that they're the most evil people in the world, that they actually have an opinion coming from somewhere, but more importantly, and to get to your answer, is that they start to find local ways where maybe there are policy solutions that are important. So uh, it it's probably not going to surprise anybody that both those that are pro-choice and pro-life believe in, in, that maternal um, health care is important. It's probably not going to surprise anybody that those that are pro-choice uh, and pro-life think that postnatal care is important, right? And that there should be more support for children, um, uh, you know, postnatal, particularly, say, in situations with single mothers and so on, right? None of that should probably surprise you. But it's through conversation that people say, well, maybe there are these things we can even go so far as collaborating on, right? Mm-hmm. Despite our profound difference. And the fact that we're never gonna get around that difference on abortion, right? Mm-hmm. The consensus building is not gonna resolve abortion. It's just not, right? But maybe it can solve some of the other things around it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So much. Yeah, thank you.
5: Mm-hmm. Oh. Hi, again, I'm Garland, um, thank and thank you for your you. presentation. Um, The Coley's question and your response uh, got me thinking about the negotiation between having a totally open forum with no preordained outcomes and then also mediating a bit of or facilitating kind of a constrained outcome at least in the sense that people won't work against their own self-interests ultimately. So um, I'm thinking your example about the watershed in Mm -hmm. Massachusetts doesn't suit this entirely, but the idea that people would rather have the view than have a fully functioning ecosystem. um, That, you know, there could be even more examples where they're really working against their own interests. For example, maybe a mining community Mm -hmm. rather than investing in, other forms of economic development that would then um, make it impossible to reopen a mine. They'd rather keep the possibility open to have the mine come back Mm -hmm. um, when that's unlikely to happen. So how do you, how as a planner or a facilitator of these conversations negotiate between having this be completely community led and then also constraining that process so that You know, you're kind of inserting your opinion at some point saying, you know, I don't think that this is a good idea.
1: No, that's a a great question. I would say the answer is is that if I'm honest about it, very rarely are we not going in it's not necessarily our idea, exactly. but the idea exactly. of some some yeah. proponents. Yeah, I mean, we're hired by a proponent. Typically, exactly. I mean, I'm not now. I'm here, but the people who do this day to day are hired by proponents. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and is their ethical or moral choice around you know if you if if the mining company hires you and you take it on, that's your ethical or, or moral choice. Clearly, and we can talk about whether or not somebody should make that choice, but that's a different matter. But it's you're deciding. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I think though. Where you, where you are broad, and I think it goes back to the, one of the questions I was answering that Catherine asked as well, where you're broad about it, the framing part, isn't necessarily where you want to end up. So in the Assabet River example, at the end of the day, this was the, the organization for Assabet River wanted this to be about resolving nutrient problems, and it looped back to that, and that was their point of departure, and that's what they wanted to see done. But it was in the the way that you don't go in um, necessarily with that as assuming that's the point of departure for everybody, I'll put it that way. So how do we have parties there by understanding the way they frame the issue and then we can bring it around to, to the issue that an organization wants resolved um, but but acknowledging that different people are going to have a point of departure and that those are going to persist, right? So it's not like, oh, I fooled you, you know, you actually care about this and ha ha ha, we're doing this. But it's more like, no, we respect that you care about this other thing. It so happens to interact with the thing we want to talk about, right? So to use that, um, the, well, actually, I'll use a different example again if it's okay, is I'm working right now with a team here on, uh, it's called the Renewable Energy Facility Siting Project. Pretty clear we have a bias towards wanting to cite to renewable energy, um, but we don't go into commu- the, the goal is not to go into communities and say, oh, you guys are all stupid. We should build, we should let people build the wind turbine. It's to say, there's something going on. We believe, and we're not, we don't lie about this. We're not a- ambiguous about the fact that we believe we need to increase the, the, the ratio of alternative energy in our portfolio pretty quickly if we want to meet climate emissions goals. On the other hand, there are community groups that have a whole litany of concerns around wind turbines in their area. Some of those, maybe, I may think are crazy. Some of them I might think, Ah, those are pretty good. You know, I can appreciate your concern. Doesn't matter. The point is is that I have to understand where they're coming from and I have to be able to address those concerns and use those points of departure, address those, answer those points of departure if we're ever gonna help to do the goal of the people who might hire us, which would be a proponent of wind turbines, right? Does that make sense? That sort of answer?
2: actually i've got something to add to that if that's all right um uh, last spring um spring 2018 dr kirk in the school for public international affairs uh did an entire semester-long course on deliberative democracy mm-hmm. um issue guides forums things like that about the conversation of you know how do we engage folks in these conversations and one of the central questions of the semester was what is the point of deliberative democracy and you know forums and conversations and things is it an outcome where people you know have made up their mind and, and you know come to some consensus or made some decision towards action, or is it the process of the deliberation itself, having people engage with each other on important issues and you know build that trust and relationship and really kind of refine their views or their identity around certain issues. So I think that's a an interesting question to consider as well, especially with collaborative governance, obviously governance being probably some sort of policy or mm-hmm. political outcome. Um, but just what, it, what is the point of these conversations? Is it just to have people really, truly engage on a deeper level with topics, or is it that outcome? Yeah.
1: That's a great, and that's, of course, not a question that there's a right or wrong answer no. to, obviously, <laughs> and you know that. But yeah, no, that, I think that's, that's a really great point, though. And it um, and it probably don't have to be mutually exclusive. I'd like to hope they don't have to be. Um, but I do, maybe I'm showing my cards and my perspective a bit too much here, I do think it's... It's a shame when a process ends with everybody saying, oh, yay, we had a conversation. I think it's really important to the process, and it's really important to building larger democratic institutions over time, uh, and empowerment and all those things we want to do through that deliberative, that, that process of building a better deliberative democracy. But I think it's a shame at the end of the day, decisions or recommendations are arrived at and then they're just completely ignored. But People are happy because, oh, I got to be a part of something. I think that's a shame. So.
0: I guess we'll wrap it up, but thank <laughs> you so much for your participation, especially for Professor Shang to be here, and for our facilitators, Emma and Catherine. Sense, yeah. Yes, thank, thank you. you